it feels eerily to me like history is repeating itself like a lot more directly than I would prefer. Exactly like it happened, you know, in Oppenheimer's time with the Russians. I think there are a lot of lessons to draw from the mistakes that were made in that era and that we should not make those mistakes in this era. And at least sitting here today, those lessons are, are not being drawn. No. <laughs> Hello, Mark. How are you? Hey, good afternoon. I am excited to be with you today. All right. Well, we're we're going to talk about a uh, probably the the biggest and most important film of the year, Oppenheimer. Um, and why don't we just start out like uh, you know you've been doing a bunch of reading on Oppenheimer, the man. Uh, what did you think of the film? Yeah. So on balance, I liked it a lot. Um, so, uh, you know, and I, I, you know, there's a lot of ways to kind of score these films. And of course, Christopher Nolan is, you know, one of the, one of the best filmmakers of our, of our time. Um, so obviously it's, it's a great artistic achievement. The other way that I always look at these things, if it's anything historical, of course, is, you know, historical accuracy or as, as, as close to it right. as, as we could possibly, as possibly get. The challenge, I, I always thought, you know, the, like the challenge with any topic like Oppenheimer, which was, you know, as, as you saw on the movie, and by the way, we're going to spoil the movie like crazy, which is, uh, I think, uh, appropriate. Uh, because uh, it, it's it, it is actually based in history. We actually know how it ends, um, but, <laughs> True. but but uh, it's all on the Wikipedia page. But uh, you know, like the challenges. You know, it took place. You know, it obviously took place during the height of communism, during the height of, of World War II, and then the Cold War. Um, and so it took place at a time when you know political passions were like greatly inflamed uh, in the country and around the world. And you know, for fifty or sixty years following that. I think it was very hard for historians, you know, of sort of that generation or the generation that followed to be dispassionate about it. Um, one of the things that struck me about the movie is it was, you know, Nolan is a Gen X filmmaker, right? Um, so yeah. he's, he's post, he's post boomer, he's Gen X. And so he's, he's got what it felt the like best to me case is, scenario for a movie like this. Yeah. I think that's right. Exactly. Yes. The yeah. boomers would have been a, a boomer would have been an issue. A millennial would have been an issue. Uh, the Gen X is, is as usual. Gen X is the sweet spot, which is yeah, of course the best our, our generation gen by far. Our generation, exactly. The generation that will never hold power, but is nevertheless, nevertheless the best one. Um, <laughs> and so, um, uh, and, and so it, what it felt like is he had enough removed from the passions of the time that he was able to be, you know, pretty, I would say, clinical about it. Um, and so I guess I, so I was I was pretty impressed by 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 how it told the story. Um, and, and, and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that in some detail. Um, you know, probably my, my, my biggest issue with it was, was the ending, which we could also talk about, um, and ended on obviously a very down note, um, you know, with respect to, you know, the potential you know, end of the world, which, you know, I think was actually very undeserved in terms of what actually ended up playing, ended up playing out, which I think we'll also talk about. Before we get into the ending, <laughs> um, let's, uh, just kind of start with some, uh, questions from Twitter. Uh, this one's from DJ Wayne and he says, what was it about Oppenheimer's personality that made him different from other engineers and able to lead the Manhattan Project? Which is a great question. And also, like, how did General Groves, like, pick him? Really an unusual thing, particularly when you think about how people are selected for things, you know, in today's government environment. Yeah, well, that's the thing. And, and, you know, they kind of alluded to this in the movie a little bit. I think a little bit of it was Oppenheimer was a very, you know, kind of well-respected. He was like a very well-respected, interestingly, almost like generalist physicist. Like he wasn't specifically known. Like he never won the Nobel Prize, I don't think. He, he was never specifically known for a single piece of breakthrough work the way that, you know, the way that an Einstein was. But he was sort of respected by everybody. And so I think it was a little bit of that. I think it was, honestly, I think it was a little bit of down selection, kind of the way that Gross talks about in the, in the film. <laughs> Just kind of like yeah. he kind of ruled other other people out, but 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 I actually want to I want to turn this question around to you, which is at the time uh, Oppenheimer was selected to run the Manhattan Project, he has not he had not actually run anything. So 
it it really struck me in the interview he did with uh, Groves in the movie, which, um, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly how historically accurate that interview was since it was just the two of them, but it really felt like kind of a little like a selection process for an entrepreneur. So, you know, we've <laughs> invested in entrepreneurs who have never run anything uh, and who have built giant companies. And the thing that he had that was very clear in that interview was that kind of disagreeableness personality trait. And specifically, like he really thought for himself, believed in his own ideas and didn't give a you know, two cents what anybody else thought about what he thought, which um, in leadership turns out to matter probably as much as anything. Uh, you know, if you're influenced, um, if, if you don't get strong enough conviction to be almost uninfluenceable, it's very hard to build a company. And I think that, you know, that thing kind of jumped out to me as, oh, I can see why he picked him. You know, this is the type of guy who could now. The Manhattan Project was so spectacular and he was he built a whole town. He was the mayor. He had people's whole families there. You know, he was directing like the smartest people in the world. Um, who knew that he could do that? Like, I think that was probably impossible to tell at the interview process. But um, you could tell that at least he was the type of guy who had leadership skills. Um, and, and, you know, and he, like many great leaders, he, he was a bit of a crazy character. Yeah, the other thing, you know, is he had a lot of he had a lot of infrastructural support behind him. And you, there was that great scene where they're out in the desert and Oppenheimer's like, we'll build it, you know, we'll build a town here. And, and uh, Gross snaps at his, you know, his adjutant. Uh, OK, build him a town. Right. And like, you know, boom, there's a town. Yeah. Um, right. <laughs> and so. Right. And so and so part of that, you know, part look, part of that was it was wartime. And so part of that, it was military control. Um, uh, part of that, though, it was, you know, look, it was the old American industrial engine. Right. Was still running. Uh, right. And it's the same industrial engine that, that won World War Two. Right. And there's there's great books about kind of the so-called arsenal democracy, which was this massive spin up of the American manufacturing machine, you know, to build tanks and planes and everything. There's actually this great book. There's a economist, Alexander Field, who has done this. The, he's done a pair of great books in the 1930s, 1940s. But he talks in, in great detail. He goes through basically the American military production machine basically spun up in 18 months. You know, from making basically trains and cars for civilian use to making bombs and planes uh, and that tanks. Crazy, yeah. <laughs> it was like an eighteen-month cutover. They they made stuff for like two years, and then they spent the next eighteen months. In by nineteen forty-four, they were already spinning that machine down, um, and 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 going back to civilian production. And so the 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 whole American production miracle of that era, which you know for sure saved the Soviet Union, which maybe we'll talk about, and saved Europe. Um, right. Uh, and save, you know, Britain and everything else, um, you know, and, and you, you know, potentially, you know, the world, um, you know, the, the, the entire thing basically played out over the course of like, you know, basically four years, four or five years. Um, and so the, the, the speed and, and sort of quality of execution of the American production machine at that time, you know, was, was light years beyond what we have today. And I, I would, uh, for people who want to know kind of how much things have changed, um, you know, there's this guy, uh, Ezra Klein, who writes for the New York Times, who I, I kind of generally disagree, you know, disagree with on, on, on almost everything. But he wrote this amazing piece a few months back about the Chips Act um, and, the, you know, what, what is supposed to be the production of new chip factories in the U.S. to kind of return to this kind of production mentality, you know, for the, you know, sort of for the new Cold War with China. And he, he wrote this great piece. It's called the title of the piece is The Problem with Everything Bagel Liberalism. And he uses the metaphor of the everything bagel to basically be the full load of sort of political political implications for actually building anything in the U.S. today, which is basically a completely different challenge. If you just read this piece, he goes through it in detail, a completely different challenge 
to actually build anything. And so there is an amazing compare and contrast kind of right there between what was possible then and what's possible now. And my, you know, my hope, you know, one of, one of the hopes you have for movies like this is that it kind of creates this very vivid picture, you know, that, that, that people used to be able to accomplish a lot in a very short amount of time. Um, and, yeah, I, you know, that, that, yeah, exactly. And, you know, look, we had Operation Warp Speed with the vaccine, which was a little bit of a return to that. Um, but, um, you know, the, the American system today largely does not run like that anymore. But it could. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's very interesting in that um, a few things. One is, you know, there was a government's role versus the private sector's role. And then the fact that, you know, the government let the private sec sector do its thing and the fact that the private sector was run, um, you know, largely by the founders of the companies at that time. You know, it was the the early days of the Industrial Revolution, which... Um, you, you know, many of the kind of big manufacturers these days, you know, with the exception of, you know, companies like Tesla um, are not uh, at all run by their founders. And to kind of change from anything they're doing, I think, would be quite the challenge. Exactly. Like Elon, push came to shove. Elon can build tanks, right? Yeah. You know, can yeah. the legacy car companies? <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny because the legacy car companies at this point just assemble cars, um, you, you know, so they, they would have to change every bit of the supply chain. They don't make any of the parts. Uh, so it's, it's very different than the Henry Ford days when he um, uh, bought rubber, you know, bought uh, land in um, the Amazon so he could grow rubber tree plants so he could, <laughs> you know, basically make every single part of the car. Uh, so we're not in that world anymore. So this is from uh, Vibhav. Uh, and his question is, if you directed the Oppenheimer movie, what changes would you both make? Oh, OK. So I've got uh, I've got a, I've got a small one and a big one. Well, I yeah. guess they're both big ones. Um, so the small one is the treatment of Einstein. Um, and uh, do you have. <laughs> and what about the treatment of Einstein? The treatment of Einstein. So the treatment of Einstein is very interesting. So the treatment of Einstein. Uh, 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 the treatment of Oppenheimer's involvement with communism, I thought, was was pretty bad. Was pretty pretty true to life in terms of at least what what, what I've read in the histories and what what we know today. What we actually know, yeah, yeah, right. What we can talk about, and for people, I'll just uh, there's one very important thing about communism in that era, which is we know a lot more about what happened, and in particular uh, the the affiliation of, of Americans with the Soviet Union in that era. We know a lot more about that post the 1990s than people knew pre the 1990s. And so uh, a, a lot of the history, a lot of the cultural history of that era is set by histories that were written between like, you know, 1950 and 19, you know, kind of 1990, kind of when the boomers were writing history. Um, but in the 1990s, there was this uh, this event happened, which was the declassification of a set of intelligence files from the National Security Agency called the, the Venona files. And it, it turns out that American intelligence had bugged Soviet military intelligence all through the Cold War and had intercepted all of the reports back and forth with their uh, field with their case officers in, in the United States, which means that the American intelligence community all through the Cold War knew about a large number of Soviet spies operating in America. Um, and, and they were they were unable to do anything about it because the information they were getting was so valuable. It was one of those paradoxical situations where the information they were getting with this, this Venona uh, uh, intercept system, the information was so valuable they couldn't use it. Because <laughs> if they used it, the Soviets would realize ah, that their that information- they had the info. Yeah, yeah, right. That's a classic intelligence problem, yeah. Yeah, so they, they knew, so the, the intelligence community knew that there were spies and they had to leave them in place. 
um, in, in senior levels of the government um, uh, because um, they couldn't uh, they couldn't risk the Soviets finding out that their uh, their messages were being uh, intercepted. But anyway, you know, the, the information gets, you know, uh, declassified at a certain point. This information got declassified in the 1990s. And so we, we know a lot more post the 1990s of exactly how broad and deep the Soviet intelligence penetration of American institutions in the Cold War actually was. And, and by the way, and in World War Two and before World War Two. Um, and, you know, the answer is it was very deep and very broad and very pervasive and a, a very big problem um, in a way that is sort of very inconvenient, you know, to the memories of a lot of people at that time. Um, and then also there, there, there are just a lot of things that people said at the time that just kind of got brushed under the under the rug, um, uh, you know, later on. And, and, and so Einstein, unfortunately, and I know Einstein's. A lot of people uh, consider Einstein to be a hero, not just scientifically, but morally. And, and, the, and the movie paints him as a both a scientific and a moral hero, which is kind of the received wisdom. It's a little bit of an issue, which is Einstein was kind of a Stalinist. Um, yeah. <laughs> he, he was kind of very pro the Soviet Union, and he was kind of very enthusiastic about Lenin. Um, yeah. And he was kind of pretty in favor of Stalin. Um, and he said a bunch of things, you know, on the record, you know, kind of when his reputation was at its peak to sort of apologize for you know, or sort of justify the Soviet Union and to attack the United States. You know, things today that you read and you're, they're, they're kind of eye-watering. Uh, for people who want to dig into this, the, there's a new book out that, that goes through this called um, When Reason Goes on Holiday. Um, and uh, it goes through in detail uh, Einstein's statements in the 20s and 30s in particular um, uh, that were sort of very kind of staunchly pro, pro-communist. The idea that he was this kind of, you know, neutral arbiter uh, of morality, I think, is, is, is untrue and undeserved. But, you know, look, like, it, did enough, it did a good enough job with Einstein on that, or on, on Oppenheimer on that, that I'll, I'll, I'll cut them some slack. One interesting comment um, that I want to make on that is, you know, in reading... Um, you know, and reading the Einstein chapter in that book, one thing that struck me was he, like intellectually, basically fell for the banana in the tailpipe uh, kind of trick of communism, which is, oh, their intentions were good. Yeah, they they may have like murdered a bunch of you know like a crazy number of people, but they had the best intentions. <laughs> and it's like, what are you talking about? They didn't have any good intentions. Um, and and it, and what does it matter anyway if the result is that? But that was like exactly the argument he was making to his friends at the time, which I thought, wow, if Einstein, <laughs> literally Einstein gets fooled by that, like that, that, that was really kind of like a profound um, thing for me anyway. Yeah, and there was this real, and they, they show this in, in the movie a fair amount with kind of how Oppenheimer fell into communism. You know, which is look. You have to. You know, you have to. You have to. Um, I'm, I'm gonna. I'm gonna amuse my partner Ben here, but I'm, I'm gonna sort of justify communism a little bit and then come back around on it. Um, you you, you kind of have. You have to put yourself in the in the frame of mind of the era, right? And the frame of mind of the era was, you know, the early 1900s was supposed to be. You know, the, the 20th century is supposed to be a, a century of peace and prosperity, right? And people had very high expectations in the 1900s, of the first decade, and then World War One was a shattering event with just, you know, mass slaughter in all directions, you know, mechanized slaughter for the first time. And it was, you know, deeply, you know, it sort of fractured, you know, permanently sort of fractured Western culture in a whole bunch of of profound ways. And then, um, and then it it was followed by the Great Depression, right? And so, uh, you know, especially by by the, by the early to mid 1930s, you just had this kind of profound, you know, meltdown, what what, what looked like was capitalism was failing. It looked like capitalism was, was, was basically a failed system. Um, You know, anybody who was sort of inclined towards communism, anybody who was sort of inclined to the egalitarian, you know, kind of presumptions behind communism kind of were like, okay, this is, this is the proof that that, that the communists are right and and that we need a new system. And then they kind of alluded to this, I think, in the movie also, which is like, if everything else is changing in the world, like if, you know, quantum physics changes our understanding of reality, you know, World War One changes our understanding of war, right? Um, and so, you know, it, it kind of, there was a revolutionary kind of fever of the time of like, okay, maybe everything is changing. 
including the birth of this new system. And so there was this, it was this very kind of powerful magnetic pull, uh, especially for, you know, as it turns out, especially for kind of super high IQ people. Um, I would yep. say super high IQ people, super yeah. verbal people, um, which is sort of a recurring pattern, um, which we could talk about. And then the other is, is people who live in a world of abstraction. And of course, theoretical physicists, you know, for the most part, live in the world of abstraction. Actually, the movie, right, does this. He says, you know, theory only gets you so far. Um, yeah. you know, when, when, uh, when, when they use that phrase in the movie, it refers to the science, but you could also use that to talk about, you know, com communist theory only gets you so far. <laughs> yeah. The, the problem with all of that, right. And so, the, and this is kind of the excuse that people make, which is like, well, you know, kind of, it looked good at the time, you know, kind of excuse. The problem with that is the catastrophe of communism sort of became visible for anybody who wanted to see it. The catastrophe of, of communism became visible very quickly um, because when Lenin took control of the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union immediately fell into a devastating famine, which, which was the direct consequence of basically killing the kulaks, which basically meant killing all the productive people in the country, which was a very kind of specific well, and, and thing. And replacing that, everybody in the government with peasants. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah well, expertise, right. If, if you were the... Yeah. the, 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 the Merit was gone, you know, just uh, the whole meritocracy idea, which actually did exist in Tsarist Russia to some degree in the government, um, was basically flattened in, a, in a, what, like three days. Yeah, you know, this is all this comes across as ancient history now, but it's relevant and important. So there was this concept of the kulaks, um, which is kind of this pejorative term inside the Soviet Union for, you know, they, they use these terms like the kulaks, the wreckers, um, um, you know, the, the people who were kind of opposed to communism. And, and, and basically what the definition was is they were the smart and productive people. Right. Um, and so they, they were the people. And so the, 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 the sort of the, the way the story basically goes is if you were in a, a town or village and you were like basically a destitute subsistence farmer and there was a farmer next door that had two cows and you had one cow, he was a kulak. And basically the, pres the presumption of the Russian communist revolution was you got to kill him and take his cows. Right. Um, right. And so like that was the core animating sort of resentment. And this is sort of the problem with communism, right? Resentment, envy, rage, right, are sort of the, the, the fuel that makes the thing run. The result was they basically killed all the productive people. And then, yeah, they basically tried to run the country with all the not productive people. You know, yeah. Pol Pot years later basically yeah, skipped the whole... all the people with glasses. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Go straight to, straight to the logical conclusion, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> right, which is just like wipe out all the smart people, quote unquote, you know, smart people. Anyway, the, the, the point, though, to the movie, right, is it, it, there were reports out of the Soviet Union, you know, there were sort of the equivalent of whistleblowers basically from the very beginning. And then the, and then the show, you know, the show trials, you know, kind of kicked in early on and they were sort of you know garishly embarrassing for anybody who wanted to look and then there were all the you know there were just all these cases of you know people were getting you know scientists were getting killed like there was all this just like crazy stuff happening and so the the the, the book the when reason goes on holiday goes through this in detail but the information was available to anybody who wanted to see it and so i you know and again you know, it's hard to argue this after the fact but like it, i was gonna say you had to be like an increasingly staunch communist to basically continue to be a communist not only through the 1920s but also the 1930s also the 1940s also the 1950s 50s, also the 1960s, like new information just kept coming out. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, the history of, of this is, is that, you know, Einstein and Oppenheimer and others basically chose to ignore uh, the information and they and they chose they chose to buy into a system sort of past the point that, you know, for, at least for people as smart as they were, you know, it kind of should have been obvious. Um, and unfor unfortunately, Einstein uh, is, is with Oppenheimer in that. Yeah. So it, let me kind of defend the, the communists a little more on that, because Right. Knowing what we know now, um, you'd have to be like either like a weird cultist or an idiot or something like that to to think that a system that killed 100 million people in the last century is a good idea. Um, 200, 200, 200 million. Give, <laughs> give, Lord. Give, 
Give them, give them full credit. All right, full credit. Good, good God. Um, but you know, at the time, so my my grandparents were communists, um, and you know, kind of remembering them. Like my grandfather got to the United States from Russia in 1908. Um, so and. You know, they had his family had to flee Russia from the from uh, the czar. Uh, and, you know, it was like a pretty bad situation. And, you know, they got here with nothing. And, um, you know, he's a little kid who has to learn English and all these kinds of things. Uh, and then, you know, the Bolshevik Revolution happens and it's super exciting for them. And then, you know, like the world, the social circles, the New York Times, we're all like, you know, the whole community was was very pro-communism uh, or, or a huge part of the intellectual community was, including the press, a lot of the press. Uh, and so, you know, and, and then the dream was utopia. So they were kind of, yes, they willfully overlooked um, some of the, or many of the facts coming out, but for every kind of fact that was coming out about the atrocities, there was somebody in the press writing but this is a much better system and look at all the happy people and Stalin's a great guy and so forth. So it was a lot more, I would just say the times were much more confusing around what communism was and what it was going to become than it is, you know, like today, a, a, you know, we know what happened, um, sadly. Yeah, I would just say, I mean, for me, that leads to an even more damning critique, though, which is a, a broader critique of the system, you know, as it existed at that time, right, which to, to your point, Right. Which was basically and there's I'll recommend another book here called Red Decade, uh, which was written by an American journalist named Eugene Lyons, who kind of figured this out early and wrote this book basically about the 1920s um, and about the level of sort of communist enthusiasm in the United States, the 1920s. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, by the way, we, we to give you a sense of how enthusiastic people were about communism, like basically an overt communist ran for president in 1948, uh, Henry Wallace. Um, who was basically an overt communist and Soviet, basically, sympathizer. And he got, you know, two million votes. Um, yep. and, Probably all and, from smart people. <laughs> and I was going to say, he got the two million votes from precisely zip, the zip codes you would imagine he would get the two million votes from. Yeah. Um, it was not factory workers in Ohio, right? It was the <laughs> fancy, right? It was the fanciest, you know, suburbs, yeah. right? And, yeah. and university towns. And so, you know, even up until 1948, at the beginning of the Cold War, right, when, you know, when all of the show trials and everything, everybody knew about everything, you know, the disasters of Stalinism and the famines, right, and the whole, the, the, the whole thing was out, you know, he still, you still had two million basically ardent communists and, you know, kind of as, as late as that period. And they, they were basically the American elites. But to your point, like this phenomenon started basically in the early 1920s or even in the 1910s. And, it, and through the 1920s and 1930s, you know, the, the American elite class, like the intellectuals, the scientists, the academics, you know, we're, we, it was, yeah, I mean, it was the thing, it was the thing to do. They, they, they also mentioned this in the movie. Another thing I'll give the movie credit for is they have this kind of side comment, which is half the faculty at Berkeley is communist, right? Yeah. And it's like, well, okay, first of all, yes, that was correct. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Two is like, was it only half? <laughs> yeah. Uh, there are so many communists in Berkeley today, having grown up there. I, I was going to say, is it still true? Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and so... And so so like, yeah, no, look, it, it was totally that, you know, look, the, you know, the, the famous, you know, the famous, uh, you know, case, the New York Times, you know, correspondent, Walter Durante, you know, basically outright, li you know, basically just lying uh, mm -hmm. in the New York Times, telling a and, fake story about Stalin. And winning the Stalin. Pulitzer Prize for lying, you know, not just lying, but being and, and, awarded the highest honor. Exactly. And to my knowledge, I don't think that's ever been retracted, right? I think that's still, I, I believe that's yeah, still no, an active no, prize. No, no, I, I don't think they ever retracted it. No, no, no. 
um, yeah. it, right. And so, yeah, so it was, it was this, it, it, it was the philosophy of the, it was the philosophy of the American elites. It was, it, it super saturated the culture. Um, you know, and then if you read the accounts of the time, it's actually very funny. Um, uh, if you read the accounts of communists at the time, cause basically it was like, so basically a big part of the communist kind of energy at that time, right. It started out with the communists being against kind of the aristocracies like, like, like the, the, the czar system in Russia. But then it, it, in the twenties and thirties, you know, the, the sort of story the communists told themselves is they were fighting fascism. Right. And this was the, this, you know, this was the rise of fascism in Germany and, and Spain and Italy and other places. Right. But, but also, um, you know, the term anti-fascist was created in that era, right. Actually by the Soviets as a propaganda term to basically, you know, kind of mean communist. But then there was this amazing moment where the uh, Hitler and Stalin, right allied what was it in like 1940 1941 in the molotov molotov ribbentrop pact um and then the all of the co all of the communists in the west basically had to on a dime change their position from the fascists are the enemy to the fascists are our friend yeah. um right and that caused yeah, a yeah. bunch of people a bunch of communists of the era to lose faith right because they're like okay wait a minute mm -hmm. like apparently there's there, there's no there are no morals here and, and then and then, yeah. and then and then it was like 18 months later. Right. Uh, what was it? Hitler broached broached that pact. Right. And yeah. attacked the Soviet Union. And then and then the, the party line from Moscow changed back to the fascists are the enemy. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and the way the Soviet Union did that at that time, right, the term party line literally was the instructions from the Kremlin on what global communists are supposed to believe. And when when, uh, when American communists would have their basically meetings, they would have these study sessions uh, to establish whether they were what, to basically test each other for being, quote unquote, politically correct, um, whether they could follow the party line, which was the di dictates from from Moscow. So so you, you had these kind of wrenching turns, you know, basically in what communism meant um, and, in, in, and in what the information was. And it's kind of right. It's kind of print on the on the American psyche and the Western psyche. Um, and, and then, yeah, look, you had people were tested along the way. And I'm sure, you know, you're I'm sure members of your family were tested like this. You're tested along the way, which is like, OK, like how long are you going to be willing to basically buy into this? How long are you going to put up with it? How long are you going to believe what's in the newspaper? <laughs> right. Like how yeah. many how many how many atrocities are you willing to count? And it's how, you know, the old thing of like you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. OK, how many eggs? Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, like part of part of the. And, and by the way, like it just it, it's striking, as you said, that how many of the communist terms have come back, social justice, cancel culture, you know, they, they're all, uh, you know, they're all concepts from from the kind of Soviet era communism and uh, and everybody's cool with it, which is, um, you know, democratic socialists, like they're all like, you know, Lenin's ideas and so forth. And people are like. You know, could you? It's hard to imagine like Hitler's ideas coming back and people being like, okay, using his language. Uh, but yet, here we are for sure. Yeah, I think that. Um, Comrade, the, the other by thing the way. about it, though, that that my father always said, uh, you know, kind of having grown up in that world, was that it was a full religion. Like it was, you know, they weren't really. And communism, you know, one of the things it did is it outlawed other religions, um, and. Communism itself was a full religion, so like that that notion of faith and um, belief, I think, overrode facts to a dramatic degree for for most of those people. Well, also as it showed in the movie, right? It was also how you got laid. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that was a big thing. <laughs> Right. Like yeah. these are the coolest people at the coolest parties. Right. With like lots yeah. of girls. Right. Um, and lots of, you know, young men. Um, well, and no, and no, no puritanical Christian morals and none of, none of that BS. You toss that out. Yeah. No, look, I mean, the USSR even wanted to eliminate the family. Right. One of their one of their big programs just eliminate, you know, basically the idea of monogamy, the idea of 
you know, having to take responsibility for your, you know, they wanted, the Soviets wanted children's, children raised in group homes, um, right, which would leave the parents free to be full-time communists and, you know, do all the things that you got to do if you were a communist. Another so, idea yeah, that's come back, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Who, yeah, yeah whose kids are they? Are come back in these pieces and these, these, these words and these, these ideas, yeah. Yep, exactly. The, the ideas are not dead. Um, so, um, so yeah, so the, the other thing in the movie, um, we can come back to communism if you want, but, um, you know, the other thing in the movie that I thought um, was important, uh, that I thought was, in a sense, it was, a, it was correct, and in a sense, it very, it, it very much wasn't. And so at the, the, the very end of the movie, um, you know, there's this kind of pivotal final kind of conversation with uh, uh, Einstein and Oppenheimer, where Einstein basically says, you know, you didn't set the world on fire, but maybe you actually did. Right, which is to say that the bomb didn't literally burn down, you know, the the, the atmosphere as they were worried about for a moment. But you know, nevertheless, you have now created the uh, an arms race. You know, the existence of the bomb now creates an arms race. The, both sides are going to, you know, the implication being both sides are going to build arsenals, and then at some point the bomb's going to get lost and the, uh, launched, and the world will be destroyed. And so it, it it ends in this note of like basically you are you Oppenheimer and you know by implication us the audience right are kind of responsible for the end of the world. Yeah. Now, in a sense, you know, I think that's a valid choice because with what they knew at the time, like that was a very, you know, valid fear and lots of, you know, smart people who, you know, including people at like the Rand Corporation who were thinking through like game theory of nuclear war and so forth were very worried about, you know, these, these scenarios. Um, so on the one hand, like that was a valid choice given what they knew at the time. You know, look, having said that, sitting here in the year 2023 and looking back, um, I think we now know, I would say quite conclusively um, you know, as much as you can know anything involving counterfactuals, I think we know, or I would argue that we know that the invention of the atomic bomb and the, uh, the, the doctrine of mutually assured direction, destruction that resulted from that um, prevented World War III. Um, and when I say prevented World War III, I mean that had the bomb not been developed and had both the, you know, had both ultimately the U.S. and the USSR not not developed their arsenals that they did, um, you know, the, it, like it, it was, it seemed very probable then and now um, that the U.S. and the USSR were going to have World War III in the 1950s or the 1960s, or frankly, maybe as late as the 1980s, um, the way things unfolded. Um, and that the World War III would have been, you know, if not a nuclear war, it would have been, you know, a, a conventional war that would have made World War II look like child's play, right? So it would have been, and if you think about the stepwise thing, you had the the rise of mechanized slaughter with, you know, tanks and planes starting in, in World War One, and then you had like, you know, World War II is just devastating levels of death, um, right? Including, by the way, mass civilian death by firebombing. Right, which 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 the movie didn't spend that much time on, which which, which we could talk about. Right, the, the death from the civilian death from the skies was not new with the atomic bomb. Right, like the Germans and the Americans. Right, we, we you know we 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 did a lot of firebombing of both German cities. Many war crimes, many such cases. Well, there were yeah, there were well, there were cases. Or I think it was I forget. I think it was LeMay who said yeah, basically if the U.S. loses World War II, we're all going to get prosecuted for war crimes because you know the the U.S. was firebombing cities. Um, you know, with, you know, with, with conventional incendiaries and, and killing hundreds of thousands of people, um, you know, kind of per city. So, um, so, so anyway, the, the point being like World War II was like a, a charnel house, like it was just absolutely devastating in terms of ma ma mass death. And so you, you have to kind of close your eyes and imagine basically the atomic bomb didn't exist. The project failed or never happened. Um, and then you roll into World War III with the USSR in the 50s and 60s with another step up in the lethality of conventional munitions and of, 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 of mechanized warfare. Um, and you just have to imagine basically a massive ground war, you know, on the European plains, you know, for the next decade, you know, and, you know, and spilling, you know, all throughout the extending all throughout the world. And, you know, imagine, you know, 200 million people dying in that war. 
right? Um, and and and, and it, at least it seems to me, and I think a lot of historians now believe the the existence of the bomb. <laughs> and, we'll, and we should talk about what we mean by the, the bomb, also because the existence of the, of the A bomb, but also in particular the existence of the H bomb, the hydrogen bomb, uh, prevented that from happening. Um, and 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 so you know, look, sitting here today, like that's the war that never happened. There have been other wars that have happened, but not at that level of scale in the time since. And so there are probably something like 200 million people alive today who would not be alive had Oppenheimer not invented the bomb. And this gets into the, the underlying kind of theory, you know, the game theory of nuclear war, which is like, okay, like if, if you know, if there's some non-zero chance, to, if, if there's a 99% chance of preventing World War III and a 1% chance of destroying everything, you know, like, the, you know, the game theory on that gets very tricky. But, but, but look, like at some point you have to get, give credit for what actually happened. And what actually happened is that World War III didn't happen. And hopefully doesn't with nuclear capability. That would suck. Uh, just, you know, one kind of comment on that original question about how to change the firm or the, the film. I think that, um, and it's a minor thing, but it would have been great to have uh, John von Neumann as a character for a couple of reasons. One, he's just like a brilliant, funny guy, and it would have brought in the kind of invention of the, uh, of the modern computer architecture. Um, but the other thing is, you know, he was not a communist. <laughs> uh, so the, the non-communists did exist, and it would have been at least intellectually really interesting to kind of understand what those conversations were like. Anyhow, so next question. Well, let's talk about oh. let's talk about him for a second, if we could, because yeah. I know he's yeah, yeah, yeah. he's your favorite. He's your favorite yeah. also. So. So there's this great book that, that, that Ben and I've read. It's called, it's called, I think it's called The Man from the Future. Yeah, it's the, the, Man from the Future, yeah. The von Neumann book, and so I think it does a very good job of telling telling von Neumann's side of the story. So a couple of things about that. So 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 one is, look, there were people, you know, back to our earlier discussion of communism, there were people who saw this clearly at the time. They they saw the Soviets for what they were in the 20s and 30s, and and von Neumann was one of those people. Um, and von Neumann is quoted by many people who knew him in the 20s and 30s as basically being almost eerily prescient in terms of like how world affairs would unfold. He was a Jewish immigrant from 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 Hungary. He hated the Nazis as much as anybody, but he had the Soviets dialed in from jump, right? He, he knew exactly what they were and, and, and the, th the threat that they were. He was anti-communist and, and sort of a, uh, a staunch Cold Warrior, you know, and anti-Soviet, you know, his, his whole life. So he saw it. By the way, other people who saw it, uh, they, the Boris Pash, the security officer, um, he saw it and they, they mentioned that in the movie. And then they, they, they gloss this over, but Louis Strauss, you know, who's a major character in the movie, um, he also had seen the horrors of communism up close in the around the time of the Russian Revolution. There were people who saw it. By the way, another person who saw it interestingly was Ayn Rand, right? Um, uh, who was starting to rise to prominence in this era because she was a refugee from you know basically the, the 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 Russian Revolution. She saw it. She told everybody what was going on, and you know most people ignored her. Um, and so, so there were people who saw it anyway. So von Neumann is one of the people who saw it. So. So that turned him into this very, very staunch anti-communist. Um, and, and, you know, he's a hero of both Ben's and mine. But, but let me say that y you can apply also a general critique to von Neumann also, which, which is a very interesting thing, which is sort of this, 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 this idea of like the danger of science, the danger of people who are very intellectually smart um, and live in a world of abstraction and in a world of ideas. Um, basically, when they when they map into politics, things don't go well. And, you know, of course, sitting here today, at least Ben and I would say that von Neumann like had a clearer view of politics than, you know, than Oppenheimer or Einstein did. However, having said that, von Neumann, uh, you know, by the early 19, late 1940s, early 1950s was advocating a nuclear first strike against the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah. And his famous line, his famous line was, um, if you tell me we could bomb them tomorrow, I say, why not today? <laughs> yeah. uh, if you tell if you tell me we could bomb them at 5 p.m., I say, how about 1 p.m.? Yeah. <laughs> And so in his theory, and he had a theory, his theory was if America has the bomb and the Soviet Union doesn't have the bomb, 
then there's basically a moment in time opportunity to basically take them out before they get the bomb and they become a threat. Um, and, and basically he, he then advocated a full nuclear first strike. Now, and let me just say for the record, like I, I'm not, I don't support that either. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I don't don't think that would have been good either. Right. So, so you had this thing where, you know, you had basically the, the scientists on the one side being way too sympathetic to the Soviets. You had the people on the other side being, you know, arguably, um, you know, way too hawkish. Um, and so, you know, you have these like ultra, you know, and, and von Neumann may be the smartest person of the 20th century, right? And even he got so kind of pulled into all this that he advocated for, you know, what were certainly war crimes, if not, you know, genocide. Um, and so this thing where we take our best and brightest scientists and intellectuals and thinkers and professors and academics and sort of media superstars and we, and, and inventors of new technology, and we kind of impute into them moral wisdom and sort of political judgment. Like the entire history of that era is basically a giant case study and don't do that. Yeah. Well, and von Neumann went on to uh, invent game theory, um, which then he tried to apply to politics again. Um, and I think retrospectively, most of those ideas were extremely bad. Personality wise, you know, he, he was kind of both funnier and then uh, much more direct than the other guys uh, kind of running away from the facts. Well, and he was appalled, right, by what he saw, right? He was appalled by all the communists in, in the government and in, in the scientific establishment, right? And, and by the way, I think justifiably so. Yeah, no, he was furious. Actually, this brings um, uh, up the next question, which is very interesting, which is uh, Sanjay Thakur, who says, can you discuss the historical context of Oppenheimer's security clearance revocation during the McCarthy era and its implications for the balance between individual freedoms and national security, which is very interesting because it's it's kind of an idea that, um, or a question that's come up, come back up in that, uh, you know, we have uh, a, a kind of McCarthy-esque kind of uh, movement going on now, you know, from the other uh, direction. Um, so how do you think about that? you know, both with Oppenheimer and then in general. So the history here is that the, it's very important. So the, the, there's a very important point thing to be learned from the history here, which is sort of, so we have this kind of cultural memory of this thing called the Red Scare, right? And, and even the term of it kind of loads the thing of like, it was a scare, right? As opposed to something real, right? And then it was sort of this McCarthyism and it was so unfair that these people were getting blacklisted. I know you have, Ben has family members who are blacklisted. So this is maybe still a little bit of a sore spot. Um, yeah, in, uh, I'd like to talk about that. Actually, it's a, it's a fairly <laughs> interesting story, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we'll come to that. But um, uh, just for the record, I did not. Uh, <laughs> but um, if you go back and you reconstruct sort of what actually happened in that era, like let's let's put the term Red Scare aside for a moment because it's gotten very loaded up with assumptions. But let's just say like anti-communist sentiment. Um, it actually turns out there were sort of three waves of anti-communist sentiment in the U.S. So there, were, there was a wave immediately following the Russian Revolution. So there was sort of, and this is sort of referred to as the original Red Scare, sort of from in sort of 1917 to like, I don't know what it was, 1921 or 1922, there was this moment where basically it was like, oh my God, the Reds are coming, um, right? And, and, and I think a lot of that, when I read the history, a lot of that was basically, it was, it was literally going to be that it was like the labor, basically it was the unions, basically it was that the unions were going communist and that basically there were going to be like general strikes and, you know, the American economy is going to get shut down and communists were going to take over all of our industrial companies. So there was like this brief moment in time um, where there was like an anti-communist sentiment. And then in the 1920s, that that faded. And I think the reason that faded um, is because the Soviet Union actually reopened economically in the 1920s. And so the 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 true story of what happened is Lenin took over. The, the country immediately fell into famine. Um, Lenin actually backpedaled on economic communism and he created this thing called the New Economic Program. 
uh, the NEP, and he basically invited in America and American business and American business people to basically make money in Russia in sort of the same way that happened, by the way, in Russia in the 1990s. It was sort of a parallel, right, right. Uh, you know, kind of thing to that. And, and it was literally because he needed he needed American and Western industrial production to basically like keep the country from like literally just dying. Um, and so the 1920, and that was when sort of communism became cool in the U.S., right? Which which is sort of like, oh, okay, these are our these are our friends, you know, these are. Our kind of junior partners, you know, we're kind of rescuing them, we're kind of in bed with them, we're making a lot of money with them. And so there was very little anti-communist energy in the US in the 1920s. Um, there was very little um, in the 1930s, you know, with, as we discussed with, with the Great Depression. By the way, through that era, um, like the US government was basically not concerned with whether people were communists when they hired them. And, th and this is the setting you know, with which, you know, in which Oppenheimer is selected and all these other scientists are selected. You know, Groves, Groves makes that comment later that, you know, we wouldn't have been able to clear any of these people, you know, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. right? Because many, many of them were communists or had communist affiliations. Yeah. Um, and, and by the way, there were communists, you know, there were communists, it, it was according to the reports yeah. at the time, um, you know, there were communists in the OSS, which was the forerunner of the CIA at the time. And, and Donovan, who ran the, General Donovan, who ran the OSS at the time, really fundamentally didn't care. Whitaker Chambers tells this amazing story in his book of how he basically tried to out himself to the U.S. government as a, as a Soviet military intelligence uh, recruiter um, in the 1930s. And he, he, according to his story, it takes him six years to get taken seriously by the FBI and the Justice Department. They just didn't care. Like it wasn't, the Soviets yeah. were not the problem. They were not the problem, they just didn't care. So then there was a flurry of anti-communist sort of energy in the, during that period where Hitler and Stalin were allied. And so there was sort of this abortive short little moment in the early 40s. And then that faded and then, you know, look, Stalin became our huge friend and ally, you know, kind of all the way through World War II. And then the quote unquote Red Scare, the McCarthy thing didn't really start until the late 40s, early 50s. And so. The point being, like, whether you even cared, or if you were in a position of responsibility and power in the U.S., and even if you weren't a communist and didn't have communist sympathies, you didn't really care if you were dealing with a communist, except during the period in which there was actual inflamed relations between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And so basically, the, the, the morality as experienced in the U.S. was dependent on what was happening internationally at that moment. Um, and I think that's very important to understand because it's, we can go back to this later, but this directly applies to what's happening with China today. Um, <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> Which is there are people who have been close to China over the last 20 years who are starting to wake up and realize that they probably made a big mistake um, because the moral valence of China is changing in real time as the U.S. becomes more anti-China, as China becomes a greater threat. Uh, it's perceived to be a greater threat, um, you know, but, but sort of by both parties in Washington. And so it, it feels like we're going through one of those moments again. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to go through that, which is like that, that's the nature like. The reason the quote unquote Red Scare and McCarthyism and so forth like seems so shocking at the time to people, including people, of course, who got caught up in it, right, um, is because it, it followed 20 or 25 years for the most part of nobody caring, right? And so, and so it was like this is what, what Nietzsche called a revaluation. It was like this change in values and morals that basically was the result of a geopolitical power shift and, and the threat of a, threat right. of a new You're war with no warning. Your your business and and uh, yeah everybody everybody including John von Neumann had communist friends um, right like right. Einstein <laughs> yeah. yeah right well you couldn't I mean yeah I mean much like today right you you couldn't you couldn't live or work in the setting of an American university and not know communists like it was not not possible right and and, and again like we talked about like they were the cool people right um, yeah and, yeah, yeah. And, the people so they, you wanted to be friends with absolutely they had the best parties right so yeah um, uh, yeah. yeah. So anyway, like, so, so my, my sympathy, such as it is for people who got caught up in the Red Scare is basic, it, it's less that they were unfairly, 
it's less that it was unfair to basically target them for being communists. It was, it, I would argue, it was more that it was unfair that the rules changed on them kind of in the middle of the game, which is it was fine to be communist up to a certain point and then all of a sudden it wasn't anymore. A anyway, my, my point being like, or even independent of your, your view of the morality of that, like that was a giant change in kind of the ethos of what it meant to be communist um, that, that yeah. kicked in around the time McCarthy gained prominence. So, so, so my grandfather's... Um story is actually sort of interesting on this. So he, he was a school teacher um, and he was during the McCarthy era, he was fired from his job for being a communist, which he was. Uh, but the way he got busted <laughs> was actually quite interesting. So the, the whole, not just the term, but the concept of cancel culture um, originated in the, uh, actually I think in the American Communist Party, I'm not positive, but I, I'm pretty sure. Um, but it was certainly prevalent in the American Communist Party. And uh, the head of the teachers union was also a communist. Um, and he voted against her on some whatever school issue. And as revenge, she canceled him by turning him over to the McCarthyites. And he was thus fired. And, and I'll just say this about that is he really should not have, you know, like he was a communist, but he shouldn't have been fired because he was absolutely not teaching communism in his classroom. He wasn't doing anything to promote it or, uh, and he was, he was like very um, kind of strict about that with himself. He, he believed that would be a bad idea. So, you know, this gets into, you know, how far these ideas go of like, okay, well, can you, are you allowed to do bad things like be a Russian spy? Well, we shouldn't allow that, but are you allowed to, think bad thoughts, are you allowed to have bad conversations? And once you go, once you cross that line, um, then you kind of become the thing that you're trying to prevent. Uh, so that's, so I, I would say fairly, um, you know, the McCarthy era gets criticized for that. And look, we're seeing that brought back now where, you know, it's important, e even if people are wrong, it's important, uh, I think in a free society that they be, that we be able to have the discussion. Um, at least among adults, you know, like indoctrinating kids, that kind of thing. I, you know, I can understand why, why that uh, might not be a good idea. Um, but uh, to start to go as far as, okay, we're outlawing this whole kind of line of thinking um, gets very, very dangerous fast. So let's talk about the gradations yeah. there, because yeah. I think we agree yeah, yeah. probably on the extremes, right? Yeah. Um, but I think we maybe disagree somewhere in the middle. So how many, how many communist school teachers do you think there were in your grandfather's era in the U.S.? Well, in Order Queens, magnitude. many. <laughs> in Queens, many. <laughs> Queens, New York, that is, where, where he was. Well, so it was a very well, large... Okay, let's talk about that. Yeah, so yeah. Queens, Queens, New York, what, what, percent, what would you estimate what percentage at that time would have been communist well, of the teachers? Yeah, I mean, I, I, to be fair, I, this would be a better question for my father, I don't know, but there, there, there's certainly a lot of them. And so, and what portion of those were, um, it, it, let's, let's, let's assume your, your grandfather was being as strict as you say that he was and not bringing communism into the classroom. What percentage of the communist teachers in Queens of that era were bringing communism into the classroom? Yeah, no, they, they, I mean, certainly some were, there's, there's no question. Right. Um, but you know, like some were right. teaching, you know, it, it's, I actually think it's a fairly novel thing that people who teach, you know, math and science are introducing communism into that, uh, which certainly I, I don't think happened at that to that degree in that era. But I don't know. Well, it did. So it did. It did. Yeah. I don't think it happened in math, but it happened in science. So it's happened. It happened in biology. Right. So yeah. like Lysenkoism. Yeah. Right. So the Soviets like Soviet communists developed their own biology. 
right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Lysenkoism, right? Which was literally right. communist. It was literally politically correct biology, right? Um, and if you if you if you trace the history of that, it's pretty mind blowing because basically, like, <laughs> it turns out biology is not very egalitarian. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah no, that is the sad thing about life. And so the Soviets developed their own egalitarian biology, which, uh, by the way, was one of the big reasons for the, all for the, all the famines. Um, but it was taught for sure in Soviet universities, you know, kind of as the way you do biology, even though it like didn't actually work. Um, and so I, I don't know if they transmitted that all the way through into the American education system, but like they, for sure they had communist biology. So, 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 so anyway, so, so in the middle, uh, the reason I, I'm pushing on this is because it's like you have, okay, so you have this concept of freedom of speech, freedom of thought for, you know, for adult individuals. Um, uh, uh, but then you have this, this thing of like, okay, public school teachers are not just individuals. They're also like government employees. Yeah. Right. And they're, they're chartered by the government, right. To teach kids who are mandated by law to attend these schools. Yeah. Right. And so when you have, let's say hypothetically, let's say hypothetically, you have a large number of teachers um, that are teaching kids either, you know, at that time, communist material or, you know, today, what, whatever you would think the equivalent of that is. Um, right. Like, you know, does the First Amendment apply? Right. Like, well, uh, you know, so my grandfather was not fired for that, though. And and so there, there's. Are you fired for being a communist or are you fired for teaching outside of, you know, the curriculum. And like, I, I think it's reasonable to um, fire somebody for something that they do, but something that they think, um, or like, you know, do outside of their actual responsibility, which is to teach like a certain thing. Um, I, I think that's over the line. And like McCarthyism, like McCarthy was way over the line on that. Uh, you know, look, and, and, and there were many people who were kind of who lost their jobs and got blacklisted and so forth, who were um, actively working with the Soviet Union as well, which uh, I think my grandfather might have liked to, but he wasn't actually, you know, he did have a card. He was a card carrying member of the uh, American Communist Party. And so I, I do think like you, you do want to be able to debate these kind of big, important issues very freely. Uh, but then, look, once you start undermining national security or uh, brainwashing kids or those kinds of things, as I, I would agree that's probably over the line. All right. I'll, I'll let your grandfather off the hook for today. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so so I will note one thing. McCarthy's an, inter an interesting figure because, um, again, he's one of these guys. And the movie didn't you know, the movie kind of ends before McCarthy kicks in. They kind of they kind of sidestep McCarthy. They, they mentioned him, but they, they sidestep it. But. You know, the, the story that gets told today, of course, of McCarthy is, you know, is he was this moral is this moral monster, right? You know, making all these un, unjustifiable claims. And of course, and, and again, this goes back to what do we know today that we, we didn't know, you know, kind of when that when that 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 kind of impression got set. Um, and so what we know today is actually quite interesting. What we know today is McCarthy was like, let's say, at the very least, an imperfect messenger. And specifically, um, he made claims that he could not support, um, you know, especially with his famous thing where I have a list of X, Y, Z, and he didn't actually have the list. And then, you know, I, I, undoubtedly there were cases where people were smeared, um, you know, and unfairly targeted and, and, you know, even other cases, maybe as you say, were targeted for their beliefs, but not for their actions. Um, having said that, what we know today, following the Venona transcripts, what we know today is McCarthy actually underestimated the level of Soviet penetration in the U S government. Um, just on the numbers, he underestimated it. And so his estimates, you know, topped out, I believe, in the 200s. And it turned out, you know, the number was certainly higher than that. It was at least in the 400, you know, sort of 400s, you know, meaning, you know, senior placed Soviet assets in, you know, significant government positions, uh, including very senior positions, by the way, including into the White House. 
uh, under FDR. Um, and then, um, and then, um, you know, current estimates, the current, you know, kind of history estimates are that, that, you know, those numbers, you know, may, may well run into the thousands, um, you know, kind of from, from that era. And so, so with, with what we know today, there's this interesting kind of twist of the McCarthy story, which is he actually understated the problem. Yeah. Um, well, I which... mean, and something from my youth that, that really, um, screwed me up is the Rosenbergs turned out to actually be guilty. Um, which, by the way, wasn't known, <laughs> and and yeah, that uh, execution was one of the most kind of horrifying things. I, I remember when I was a kid, it was like, well, that, this is like one of the worst things the country ever did. Um, now, I don't know about like executing them and the death penalty and all that kind of thing. That's a different issue, but um, they they definitely gave. Uh, the nuclear secrets to the Russians probably ended up, you know, leading to like some set of those uh, secrets being given led to unimaginable number of deaths uh, by the just extension of the, of the regime, which, you know, I, I still have trouble with that today, to be honest with you, how to think about the Rosenbergs. Well, for people who, who don't know about the, this historically, it was the Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were a husband and wife uh, team. They were accused of being communist, basically conduits basically recruiters and, and, and asset handlers for the Soviet military intelligence in the U.S. during this period. Um, they, they, they became a, uh, a called a cause celeb uh, among the American left of, the, of that era, 40s, 50s, 60s. Maybe it was, it was celeb, yeah, yeah. Right. It was like, I don't know, it was like, uh, you know, the closest analogy you'd make today probably would be like a George Floyd or something like that, right? Like just in the sense of like, or an Emmett Taylor or something. It was like, it was like they were like iconic figures. Um, where it was such, it was just, it was seen so clearly by a lot of people in that era that they were being unfairly targeted. And then, the, and then they literally got executed, um, you know, by yeah, the which is, for I, I think that's one of the last executions in a, in, a, you know, at the federal level, the federal um, level. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, of course, it was a husband and wife, right? And so it's like, okay, even if the, you know, so, you know, who, you know, so, 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 so it was sort of assumed for many decades that that was a, a travesty, um. Uh, a friend of mine just sent me a uh, Bob Dylan recorded a, pr a protest song called uh, Julius and Ethel in the 70s, right? As late as the 70s, where, you know, still talking about what heroes they were. Um, what we know today um, is that they were guilty. Um, <laughs> what we know today is that specifically they were handling, I think it was their nephew, if I recall correctly, a guy I believe's name is David Greenglass, and he was a uh, technician. He was an engineer at the Manhattan Project. Um, and he conveyed, he conveyed he, this guy on the job at the Manhattan Project conveyed to the Rosenbergs who conveyed to the Soviets um, the actual wiring instructions for the bomb. Um, and that was one of the key, like it was basically the practical design to build the bomb. And the reports afterwards were that, 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 that basically was the turning point for the, for the Russian bomb program. Because, um, right, it was one thing to understand that you could split the atom and the theoretical physics of it. It was another thing to actually do it mechanically and electrically. Um, and to wire the thing up to actually detonate. And, and, and that was sort of that key moment um, where, where they, they got the bomb. And at least there are reports that the first, you know, literally the first uh, Soviet uh, atomic bombs were, as they say, uh, wire for wire compatible, um, right, with the, uh, you know, with, with, the Nagasaki, with the Nagasaki bomb. Um, and so and we know this today from the Venona transcripts. And so we know today they were guilty of sin. They did it. it to your point, the moral implications of this, right, and, and this goes back to, this goes back to the, what the apparent craziness of, of uh, von Neumann, you know, advocating a first strike, but which again, I, I don't support, but, um, you know, look, had the Russians not gotten the bomb, um, you know, would the, would the Soviet Union have lasted 
um, you know, to 1989, um, would the Iron Curtain have descended across Eastern Europe, right? Um, would, you know, another 50 million people, you know, probably have died over the course of the decades that followed in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, right? Uh, because the Soviets had deterrence once they had the bomb. Of course, they, you know, they alluded to this at the end of the movie, and I think a, a pretty good way uh, with the, that scene in the restaurant. Um, so, 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 so the Rosenbergs were like, that, like that, that was an actual pivotal moment, um, um, you know, where basically these people decided that they were going to, you know, determine the future of, you know, the rest of the century, um, you know, with, 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 with the suffering of tens of millions of people in their hands, and they made the wrong choice. Um, we know that now. Um, so <laughs> anyway, I am, I am strongly, I'm, str I'm strongly, I'm strongly pro the execution of the Rosenbergs. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to go a that little, far. I, I think they little, should have certainly been arrested and, and thrown in jail for a long, long time, but yes. Long, long time. Yeah. yeah. No, anyway, so, so this all, you know, I want to just want to come back real quick to this, this, this China thing. Cause I, I think this is, you know, this, 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 the, the reason I'm so fascinated with this whole period is because it's a significant foreshadowing of what's happening right now. Right. Because, you know, we, we I mean, look, people know, like, you know, China has been ruled by the Chinese communist party, you know, basically, you know, now for since the 1950s, um, you know, the Chinese Communist Party is responsible for, uh, you know, a level of moral horror, certainly on par with, you know, a, a Stalin. Oh, yeah. Under Mao. Yes. Yes. Under, under Mao. Right. And then in the last, you know, basically in the last 20 years, you know, starting in the early 2000s, you know, there was like a 20 year run between kind of call it 2000 and 2020 or so, you know, or into the into the late, you know, the, the late teens. This run where it sort of became the morally correct thing to do to basically be pro China, pro 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 China. Which is well, fine, by the way. Pro well, and, and, and Deng Xiaoping really changed um, the workings of the economy dramatically uh, during that period. So it wasn't, it, it, the, the government uh, remained intact, um, but the way he governed, um, so, I mean, well, it created certainly an economic miracle of the likes that, you know, um, you know maybe we've never ever seen before. He, he pulled many people out of poverty. So you have to give some credit where credit is due. It wasn't like that was nothing. Well, it wasn't nothing, but there's another way to look at it, which is he took the boot off the throat a little bit. Yeah. Right, but uh, the boot's yeah, still on yeah. the <laughs> No, I, I do want to get into this concentration of power issue, because I think that's the, 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 that is really the key problem with communism, um, for sure. Right. Well, so the, the, the historical analogy, just the historical analogy that we could talk about that, the historical analogy I just wanted to get to is, the, your point on Deng, which is, 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 is well made, but the, the, like what Deng did in China is actually quite similar to what Lenin did in the 1920s in Russia. It was, it was this thing called, the new, and people should read about the new economic program that's been lost to history. It's a very fascinating moment um, where there were a lot of American businessmen and a lot of American companies who basically went to Russia in the, 19, in the 1920s um, and, and did a lot for them and also made a lot of money in the process. Um, and I, I think basically the way the history is going to get written here is basically that with the new economic program with, with, with Russia in the 1920s is going to be kind of analogous to that, you know, kind of Deng era uh, in China, right? Although the um, Deng era lasted much longer. Well, sort of 10 years, 20 years. Yeah, so well, so was the, the NEP was give or take a decade. The, 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 the China thing, probably you'd probably say 30 years total. Yeah. Um, so yeah, maybe yeah, three, three times as long, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. But you had American business people. Um, I'll, I'll just name one, one as an example. He's, his name's kind of lost to history now, but he was a key figure in the 20th century named Armand Hammer. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Who, <laughs> and there's this great, he ran a big oil company in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the 1900s and was very, uh, very associated with, uh, with the Russians. There's two great moments in his Wikipedia biography. Um, 
One is it was always very confusing how somebody how parents had actually named their kid Arm and Hammer, right? Which is like literally Arm and Hammer, right? Yeah. Um, and um, which was like a communist slogan at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and it turns out in a baking soda, right? Ultimately, they came out of that period also, but. Um, uh, it turns out, actually, the Wikipedia entry sort of concedes that, in fact, his parents were na- named him for the, the sort of socialist slogan. Um, but also, there's this great moment where, as a young business person working for his father in the family company at the time, uh, there's this great thing in Wikipedia where he went on vacation to the Soviet Union in 1921 and like came back in like 1930. And it kind of just glosses over the fact that he was there for a decade. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then for many, many decades of follows, time. he was... A long time. And he, it was there. It was during this new economic program era. Right. Where he, he so what he was doing was he was doing business. Right. What he was doing was he was he was he got deeply entangled with the Russian system and did a lot of business and made a lot of money, um, which which at the, at the time, by the way, he was allowed to do at the time. The American government was encouraging that. Um, so but 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 in his later decades, he became a staunch advocate for nuclear disarmament and a staunch advocate for diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union. And so there, there was always this question hanging over him, which is, had he been compromised by the Soviets, right? Had he, had he basically been turned and become a Soviet asset, you know, kind of from his, time, from his time when he was there. Anyway, like, the reason I go through this is there are a lot of American business people who have been enthusiastically in bed with the Chinese system, you know, country, system, Communist Party, you know, for the last 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, right? That basically, and, and again, like, they were, like, authorized to do it. They were permitted to do it. The American government was often encouraging it, right? Um, and it was considered to be a good thing to do, you know. But there are a lot of American CEOs, you know, a lot of American companies have gotten very entangled over there. And my point is, like, the moral valence on China—you can feel it in D.C. The moral valence on China is shifting in real time right now on both sides of the political aisle in Washington. In the same way, the moral valence on the Soviet Union shifted in the late 1940s, early 1950s. And I think there—I think there are people who have been in bed with a, you know, a system where I, I think they're, you know, they're going to—if they haven't already—they're going to wake up one morning in the next, you know, few years and be like, "Oh my God, what have I done?" Um, and there's—and I think there's actually—and I'm not saying I'm in favor of it. I just—I'm trying to be kind of clinical about it. I think there's a pretty good chance uh, that we're going to enter a phase here in which there's going to be a tremendous amount of, let's say, second looks um, at activities that have, that, that, that people thought were okay, that are going to get judged, you know, historically as maybe not being okay. Yeah. Although it's the, the, the disentanglement will be much more complex this time in the sense that, um, you know, the, the Chinese supply chain to the United States is dramatically more robust than any economic connection that we ever have with the Soviet Union. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's, uh, the who's who of, uh, American large companies um, doing, you know, massive business in China and using Ch- China as a supply chain and, 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 and. Uh, so that'll be interesting. Um, so let's uh, actually, why don't we kind of get into kind of more like fundamental theory. We have a question from uh, Nicola Maharaj, uh, which is, um, what do you believe to be the biggest flaw in communism and why do you believe people fail to see it. And let me give you, let me, let me give it like, just like a quick, simple treatment. Um, but I think that is really important because it's so obvious yet, yet, yet people miss it, which is, you know, communism is, is sold as power to the people. Um, and many things, many things, many such cases have been sold as power to the people over the centuries. Um, but the truth is, and uh, this is that, you know, the people never actually rule themselves um, in the whole history of humanity. Uh, that, that, that's not actually a construct that's stable. It's more 
akin to anarchy than any kind of stable system. And so what communism really is in effect is it's not a distribution of power to everybody. It's a massive concentration of power uh, to the small number of people who run the government because you remove 100% of the power from the private sector and place it with the government. And so the <laughs> couple of problems with that. One is, you know, it is, uh, you know, it's the ring of power um, from the Lord of the Rings. It's the thing that uh, is, you know, just is eminently uh, corrupting. Uh, but as important, um, you know, all systems have incentives. And by doing that, then there's two kinds of incentives in this world, carrot and stick. Uh, but by concentrating power 100% in the government, you remove, and following the communist philosophy, you remove the carrot from society. There is no incentive to work hard, to earn more money, to have a better life for your family. That's gone. And so you're left with only the stick. And basically, in the history of communism, you know, over the, in the 20th century, it just meant mass murder, because that's literally the only way you can affect anything as the, as the entity with all this power, because you've given up the other incentive. And, you know, and look, I think people fail to see that because the sale is power to the people. And, you know, particularly intellectuals, and, and this kind of goes back to the genetic thing. Look, if, you, if you're born gifted um, in any way, athletically, intellectually, artistically, you do, there is a sense of guilt in that there are a lot of people who weren't born like that. Um, and communism has that like great appeal to make things fair. Um, but of course it doesn't make things fair. Like the actual mechanics guarantee that it makes things the opposite of fair. Yeah, David, David, Milton Friedman's son, David Friedman, had this great formulation. He said there are three fundamental motivations for somebody to do something for somebody else. Um, love, money, or force. Yes. <laughs> right? And so, like, <laughs> I do things... Very accurate. <laughs> right? So I do things for my family because I love them, right? I do things for other people because of money. Um, people I haven't met, right, uh, for money. And then what communists say is you should love everybody and you should do everything for everybody out of, you know, universal love. But what ends up happening, of course, is people don't do that. It's not natural human motivation for people to work, you know, work their butts off for people they've never met. Um, and so when you remove money, you're left with love and force. And love does not yep. scale. <laughs> love does love thing not scale. Force, force scales. Um, yeah. There's a great, there's a, another great fictional portrayal of how this goes wrong. Um, the, 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 TV, the FX show, The Americans, was, I thought, excellent. It's yeah. Written, yeah, it was a great show. Written, written by a CIA, it was created by a CIA officer who had actually fought the Russians in the Cold War. And so he, he really kind of knew what, what, what was what. Um, and there's this great uh, plot later on, I'm going to spoil it, but it's, it's central to this, this discussion. There's this great plot later on, they have a KGB officer, you know, kind of uh, character who uh, um, goes back to, gets recalled back to Moscow. They have a season where he basically is working, he's working for the KGB officer, but he's working in Moscow. His father's like a senior party official. Um, and so he gets put on this basically detective assignment. Um, it turns out basically the good food is being stolen out of all the supermarkets in Moscow uh, in the 1980s, right? Like all the good stuff is being diverted somewhere, stolen somewhere. Um, and he gets assigned to basically track down who's stealing it. And the, the, the way they set it up is it's going to, you know, in any other TV show, it'd be like there's some organized crime ring, right? There's some criminal, you know, he's going to find some criminal running some conspiracy that's going to have, you know, been stealing all the food. And he, they go through the whole season like that. And it turns out at the end, it's just the system. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. just the good food is being taken by the senior party officials. Of period. Course. 
who run everything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he finally realizes this and he's like, there's literally nothing to do. These are the people who run the country. They're taking all the good food. F you. <laughs> they get it and you don't, right? Um, and of course, right, exactly, right? The people in charge, the people with the power to administer force use it um, on their behalf and the people who don't have the power to administer the force, you know, basically just get like completely screwed. Um, so it's just, it's as cut and dried as it could possibly get. But Ben, to your point, like you, ha you have to, <laughs> put it this way, if you think your way into it, you have to think your way out of it, right? Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> very well put. Um, what it, what it turns into, what it turns into is just basically ruled by the resentful, right? So what, what, what it turns into is just like the worst people, uh, end up in charge and they end up basically ruling through resentment, um, and, uh, and, and, and bitterness and envy and, and then just everything just goes to shit. But I, I, I think that, you know, the, you know, one problem with it is even in the case that, um, it was a good person, right? It wasn't, you know. Okay, it wasn't Ceausescu or Pol Pot or Stalin or Mao or like, you know, there's a pattern here. Everybody seems to be a bad person who runs a communist country. Um, the, the problem of the economic system removing all the incentives kind of leads you to that conclusion anyway. You know, even if they're great people, even if they're, you know, full of love in their heart, um, it's, it's going to end badly um, eventually, uh, which is wh why it's so dangerous. And, and it's amazing that you know the ideas keep coming back um so so i have a <laughs> this is a interesting question interesting question for me uh it's from diamond hands <laughs> i don't know if that that sounds like a made-up name but it could be a real name no no uh, no that's the uh it's one of your one of your retards oh it's one of the retards oh awesome so, <laughs> i can't believe you had me say that on a podcast again after i got blasted the last time but a retard meaning not not a, a retarded person or a person with special needs, but uh, a part of the retard revolution, which is an uh, anagram on traitors, um, which are the people who uh, led to the uh, GameStop um, amazing stock climb. So that's what we meant. Uh, but yes, uh, great. So Diamond Hands says, do you consider Hiroshima and Nagasaki a genocide? Um, and maybe I'll start... Uh, to help, because this is a troubling question. Um, so I, I think, you know, a ge genocide is a very strong word. Um, and, you know, genocide is meant, you know, kind of literally as, a, as an ethnic cleansing of a kind. And I, I think it's very, very hard to get to the idea that the intent of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were ethnic cleansing. Like that's that, that's very difficult to come by. Um, and then now bombing, you know, nuking, um, you know, what ended up being two hundred thousand civilians, uh, you know, is like that, that. That's very like I can't get behind that. I think that's uh, that's hard to swallow. Now to Mark's point, though, um, that was a little bit the nature of this war um, that civilians were um, fair game. And the rationale for it um, was that, and, and this is something I've studied a lot, and then I've spent a lot of time in Japan, so uh, I, I think it was like a not illegitimate fear, which is the Japanese would never stop fighting um, you know, without something of this magnitude. And that, you know, from a cultural standpoint, um, is actually a pretty rational position in the sense that 
you know, Japan of that era was coming, was very, very heavily influenced by the culture of the samurai. And the samurai culture was such that um, that level of sacrifice, uh, even if you were losing the war, even, you know, to go all the way to the end was very, very built into the culture. And, you know, like we saw that with the kamikaze fighters and, and, uh, and so forth. And, you know, and they were, not only did they have that culture, but they were also like, they were very fired up by actually, interestingly, defeating the Russians in the early 19th century, um, or, or in the early 1900s, I should say, uh, which was their first kind of victory, kind of coming out of the East and going into the West. So they were, <laughs> they were fired up, they were culturally prone to fight to the death. Um, and so that, that was a real thing. And then, you know, when you talk to people in America about the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, it's like one of the most morally horrifying things that we've ever done and totally unjustifiable. And look, you can understand that because it was 1945. It felt like the war was close to over. The Germans were kind of done and um, the end was civilian. So like all those things would make you think that when you talk to people in Japan, they're less um, angry about it than we are, I would say, in and part of the reason is they really understood the Japan of that era and the things they were doing, um, you know, like leading up to the bombing of Pearl Harbor, but like where they where they were willing to take it themselves. Um, if you, <laughs> the or or at least the, the you know like I, I shouldn't speak for the entire uh, Japanese people, but for the Japanese people that I've spoken to in in Japan, um, they do recognize the atrocities the other way and. Uh, and what they were willing, like what they did and what they would have done, um, you, you know, had they been able to. So I, I think it's, uh, you know, that decision where as, you know, maybe probably 10 years ago, I would have said it was the most horrible thing we ever did. Um, I, I do understand the rationale. I still don't, I still kind of, I think I'm personally against it, but um, I understand a lot better why that decision was made. Yeah, let me add a few things. So one is um, there were two arguments at that time for doing it, um, which I think they allude to in the movie a little bit. Um, so, so one was saving the lives of American soldiers, right? So had the Japanese not right, surrendered in the war, in the war and, which means, you know, that um, West, you know, allied soldiers were not going to have to, um, you know, continue to die in, a, in, a, in, in that conflict. There, there was another argument at the time. And this, this, I would say this, this one pains me to make, and I'll, I'll describe why in a little bit. But um, you know, the other argument was it, 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 those bombings may have saved Japanese lives on net. Right. So, right. Had the had the war continued, it's certainly possible that more Japanese would have died in the continuation of the war than in the ending of the war with 200,000 people dead in those bombings. Well, particularly because they were willing to fight to the end. They were willing to fight to the end. So so. So there's a utilitarian argument that basically it was you, that actually both America and Japan were better off that those bombs were dropped. Now, let me say the problem I have with that, the problem I have with that is now we're, we're engaged in utilitarian ethics, which is the ethics of that era and how that, how, how that decision was made. And the, the, the problem with utilitarian ethics is precisely this problem, which is, okay, now you're sitting here on Mount Olympus, right, either at that time or today, and you're, you're basically saying 200,000 people have to die for the greater good. Right. And like by the what, what I've my reading of history is by the time you're by the time you're making that call. Like, boy, <laughs> have you worked yourself into a position that is really bad, right? Like that should not be the decision, right? That 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 should not be the way it, like utilitarian. There, there's something 
there's something profoundly logical about utilitarianism as an ethos, and there's something profoundly evil about it, right? Which is it sort of, it gets you into this situation where you can say things like 200,000 people need to die for the greater good. And so my- Well, and, and it gets into kind of the, the most dangerous, one of the most dangerous things about communism, which is the ends justify the means, right? Like, oh, we're going to get to this good place so we can just murder people, drop nukes, do whatever the fuck we want, because you can justify anything by that logic, yes. Yeah. And so my my conclusion from cases like this in history, my conclusion is like you don't want it if you can possibly avoid it. You actually don't want to go down the road to utilitarian ethics. And I bring this up because utilitarianism has become very trendy among our current intellectual elite who has gotten very fond of sitting on Mount Olympus and making these calls um, and deciding, you know, which eggs you break to make an omelet. And like, I think that's a bad road. Um, like I, I, I think that's a that's that's a bad ethical and moral worldview to get wrapped up in. Well, particularly, I mean, you know, the the lab leak was a great example of that. The, you know, people absolutely knew it was a lab leak. The scientists absolutely knew it was a lab leak, but for the greater good, um, we're going to say it was not. Um, and by the way, um, you know, in doing that gain-of-function research, like, like if it had come out immediately that this pandemic um, that's killed so many millions worldwide was a lab leak as a result of research that we ourselves funded, maybe that would have created a movement to stop funding the research, which, by the way, we're still funding uh, in many areas um, and could cause the next pandemic. And that whole cover-up for the greater good uh, is a kind of a, a very murderous idea. Yep, exactly. So, yeah, so... <laughs> three cheers against utilitarianism let's figure out let's figure out <laughs> let's figure out how to order society in a way where people are not sitting on mount olympus making calls of this nature i i think that would be where, where i come out of it absolutely so then uh here's a uh question from mccoy how different is the los alamos project if john von neumann doesn't accept the invite from oppenheimer they mentioned this briefly in the movie there were two paths to detonate, uh, to actually set off a, an atomic bomb. Oh, uh, right, 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 right. And they figured out that Heisenberg had gone the wrong way, right? Yeah, there, well, there were, uh, that was part of it. But then also on the Manhattan Project itself, um, there, was, there was, I think, what was called the gun, gun method, I think was references, which, is like, which was the main thing they were researching in the beginning, which was to kind of forget what it was like, literally, you know, shooting in some form um, uh, to try to generate the chain reaction. Um, but then there was this other method called the implosion method. Um, and the, 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 the one method got the bulk of the resources and then didn't work. But they had this, they, there was a brief moment in there, there, there was a brief moment where the, 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 one of the scientists whose real name was Seth Niedermeyer um, uh, says, oh, there's this other method I think we might want to look at. And Oppenheimer's like, fine, go ahead. And anyway, it, it turns out like that other, it was like the backup method for setting off the nuke. The implosion method is the one that worked. Um, there's a um, there's a there is a TV series <laughs> there's a TV series that nobody saw um, that in a different era would have won every award you could win called Manhattan um, that was uh, a few years back that they only made two seasons of but um, it uh, the setting it's it's a recreation of the it's a TV series about the Manhattan Project and uh, the lead character in it's it's the story of that second method it's the story of the the implosion method and of the of the sort of renegade effort inside the Manhattan Project to have this backup method. Um, and it's, it's a show, so they have a lot more time to kind of deal with what, what, what that all was. And so for people who are interested in that, that topic, uh, that, that show actually is actually, it's actually very good. Interesting. All right. Um, <clears throat> mm. but back to Oppenheimer, back to Oppenheimer's genius to give Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer credit. They had sort of plan A, but he had, he had, he had allowed plan B to continue to run. Um, 
right? He, he didn't. He he did not feel the need to reconcile the strategy. Uh, he was comfortable having multiple approaches um, to have multiple shots on goal. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. which 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 was very prescient and turned out to be the thing that really. I mean, without that, they would not have succeeded, and um, we would be living in a different world today. Um, so um, you know, that, to credit to another another example of his leadership skills. Well, and then the the guys he recruited. Like, like the other thing that's so amazing is. I mean, it's probably the highest concentration of talent, intellectual talent, um, for sure in the history of the country, maybe the history of the world, uh, including recruiting John von Neumann, um, you know, as well as, you know, every great physicist um, who, who wasn't a Nazi. By the way, they alluded to this in the movie also. Um, uh, many of those minds, many of the brightest minds, to your point, many of those brightest minds are what they call the Martians. Um, which was the term for basically it was the Jewish immigrants from the Budapest uh, area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and, and, and actually a lot of them were like from the same, there was like, I forget, there was like, there were, there were a small number of high schools that they all went to in Budapest. Yeah. Um, so th there was this like, there was this thing that was like, well, I, I think Andy Grove was, was, was from that area. Yeah, yeah. It's that same thing. So the, exactly that same area generated the American semiconductor industry with the so-called so -called Hungarian mafia at Intel, uh, which like Andy Grove and Les Vidas and a whole bunch of those guys. Um, and so there, there was a, there is this kind of giant mystery at the heart of both the atomic project and at the, 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 the semiconductor industry, which is why did that specific place and time generate <laughs> this set of just like incredible super geniuses? Um, and uh, nobody's ever quite uh, been able to answer that. Well, and it, you know, actually brings up this interesting thing that, that also was touched on in the movie, which is, um, you know, World War II, like... <laughs> Many more wars than I think are given credit for was a, was a race war, um, and uh, you know very specifically a race war. And one of the things that cost Hitler the war was, um, you know, his hatred for the race that ended up inventing most of this stuff, uh, the Jews, and you know, and, and that turned the whole thing. So it was a, an incredible ironic twist. Um, in that the master race was literally defeated by the race that they were trying to exterminate. Um, but it, it does bring up this like interesting, you know, issue of war and humans, which is, you know, historically, you know, it's almost always race. Um, you know, it, like it is very, very often race that causes these just major conflicts. Um, you know, including potentially right now, Russia and Ukraine. Uh, you know, there, there is a race element there. And so why do I bring this up? I, I bring it up because, you know, this whole idea that we have uh, in America these days that we should divide ourselves by race um, seems just exceptionally dangerous in that, you know, like maybe it doesn't end in genocide, um, but the chance of it ending in something peaceful and good and unifying is just seems very remote to me. Yeah, so I had this moment, I've told Ben this story, I had, I had this moment where, so, um, you know, Russia invades Ukraine, you know, it leads to kind of, you know, people are obviously sh shocked and alarmed in the U.S. And, and um, so I had this moment, it was a few weeks after the invasion, I had this moment, I, I bought this new place in L.A. and I, there was this cafe, this kind of this kind of hippie, crunchy L.A. cafe down the street, right, um, uh, which is kind of, you know, super, uh, you know, kind of L.A.-ish thing. Um, been there since the 60s or something. And so I, I go down the street, I go to the cafe and I go in and on the host station of the cafe in the front, there's this big sign, red, white and blue with, you know, stars and everything. And it says no Russian food or drink served here. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. Right. And, and, I, yeah, and, and how, literally, that was exactly how, how my, is that a good idea. Yeah. 
Like, how did we instantly get to that? Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, really? Like, really? Race war? Really? Right. And so, yeah, no, look, like it, it is, it is, I guess my, my interpretation, my interpretation more generally, my interpretation, I think this, this became true in World War II for sure. And was also true in World War I. Like these wars, wars can start on issues of like complex geopolitics or like ideological differences or like commercial, whatever trade conflicts or whatever border conflicts. But like they start one way, they end another way. And they, they do seem to end in race war. And that, that does not seem to be out of our system. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like we're trying to regenerate it with, you know, like everything we have, um, you know, and it's, uh, it's scary. I would just say, well, there've been all these, you probably have also seen, there've been all these cases. There are like classical music competitions where they won't let Russian performers participate. There are like yeah. literature prizes where like Russian authors, you know, are not eligible anymore. Like the, 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 the impulse among our most enlightened and intellectually sophisticated people to instantly demonize an entire race is, yeah, it is pretty lit. Well, it's lit, and it, it you know, like, it, and it gets into like the darkest part of human nature. And what's been like just a complete shock to me is the intellectual movement in the United States to racialize everything. Um, <laughs> which is, by the way, very bad for me personally. Um, if there, if there's a race war, uh, I am in a lot of trouble. Um, and you know, the fact that, um, people think that's a good idea is just so unusual to me that, that it would like, we'd go to that place and say, okay, you know, we're going to have to decide things, think things are going to have to be decided on race. And you've already seen it like the massive increased hostility internally of Americans against Americans almost entirely on a racial basis uh, is uh, quite alarming. Rami Moore asks, Oppenheimer's story involves themes of ambition, moral dilemmas, and personal sacrifices. How can we draw parallels between these themes uh, and the responsibilities that come with developing and deploying AI technologies in our society today? Would you like to start? So I would say, um, you know, that there are certainly some similarities and differences. Uh, um, but let me start with one of the similarities. So, you know, it was, you know, Mark and I actually had a very interesting conversation with an entrepreneur and a, you know, a very kind of accomplished um, and important AI researcher um, the other week. And one of the things that he said that I, I found like super interesting is, in looking at AI, um, one of the things that was very confusing for them early, you know, with these large, particularly with the very large models. So when the models were smaller, this actually wasn't as big a deal, um, is that it's very hard to analyze them the way you would analyze like a normal uh, computer program because they're just too big. You know, like you've got a billion or 70 billion or 230 billion parameters um, or nodes in the system uh, you know, how do you analyze that? And his comment was, you know, like we realize we need to look at it more like physics um, and kind of look at it from a system standpoint um, in the way you might look at, you know, things like, you know, temperature, velocity, or this or that, you know, in a, in a system that you'd be observing from a physics point of view. And that's actually where there's a term in these large language models, temperature, which kind of determines the level of randomness um, which they took from 
you know, the physics analogy from this, this kind of idea. And so, you know, when you think about the responsibilities of AI, I think, um, you know, the, the model is actually more analogous to physics, like literally the study of physics itself than the weapon. Um, and, you, you know, when you think about the responsibilities, there's, I think you have to separate uh, the science of it, the technology of it, um, math, you know, the, these, these building blocks of very powerful and important tools for um, really solving many of the world's problems uh, from an application, uh, you know, in this case, in, in Oppenheimer's case, a nuclear bomb. Um, but in the case of AI, like there's many, many applications, uh, just like there's many applications of physics. And I think that if you went in, like many are advocating and say, okay, we're gonna regulate physics, um, the implications of that would be, you know, very weird and also bad. And I think that's, uh, that's a very kind of dangerous point that we, we find ourselves in currently. Yeah, so the, the, the case I'll make, and I'll, I'll make the strong case for it, case I'll make is that it, it is, it, and I think the movie actually shows this and the, the history of the era certainly shows this also. Um, and the, the topics we talked about, about, about uh, all the communist scientists and so forth and the, the, the Soviet spies, um, the presumption that the people who invent the science and invent the technology um, are moral authorities um, for how that science and technology will get used um, does not hold up well. Um, and let me, let me elaborate on that. Uh, we've talked about some of it, but I'm going to elaborate on that a little bit. So, um, so first of all, like, you know, like I said, I, I think the, the, the A-bomb prevented World War III. So all of the hand-wringing, including Oppenheimer's famous hand-wringing in the Oval Office with Truman, which happened, which was true. Um, like, basically, it was a lot of hand-wringing over what I think a, a project that saved like 200 million lives. So first of all, like, it was like one of the, like in the fullness of time, Probably one of the greatest things for peace that that, that, ever, that ever happened, and a lot of the, a lot of those scientists like did not did not see that, um, and they had very strong strong opinions otherwise. Um, number one, um, uh, number two, you know, as we've discussed, like a lot of them took matters into their own hands, and through a combination of, you know, a combination of of internal agitation and 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 then in some cases direct action, um, you know, they they made decisions, including some of them to literally hand over the secrets of the bomb to the Russians. Um, you know, they, which I, like, like we discussed, I think led to the survival of the Soviet Union and the, the Iron Curtain and, 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 you know, all the, all the deaths in, in Eastern Europe that followed in Russia, uh, you know, for decades that followed, like they, they, they made, you know, those, those spies, I think made horrible, horrible moral decisions. And, and they were spying, most of those spies were spying for morality in their, in their, their views. They weren't spying for money. They were spying because they thought it was morally correct for the, the Russians to have the bomb. Um, and then there's another twist on the whole nuclear thing, which we haven't even touched on yet, which is nuclear power. Um, and, um, you know, there, there's the civilian application of nuclear technology, which is nuclear power. And, you know, sitting here today, you know, the world is, you know, generally very, you know, kind of upset and, and, um, and uh, scared of, of the prospect of, of uh, continued carbon emissions and climate change and so forth. And we, we have had the silver bullet technology for zero emissions, unlimited energy for, you know, 60, 70 years in the form of, of nuclear power. Um, and we have chosen to, uh, to, to, to not deploy that, you know, to, I think, just like devastating effect. Had we deployed it, we, we would have sidestepped the whole uh, climate change issue that we're in currently. By the way, also, the U.S. would not have had to be involved in the Middle East, right, for yeah. this entire period, <laughs> right, with <laughs> the consequences nice. there, 
right? Whoop. Like, you know, no, <laughs> you know, none of that, right? And again, like, you know, like lots and lots of death, right, followed from, 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 you know, from that. Um, and so, um, and, and then, you know, this, this, this basic presumption that scientists are somehow morally responsible for how their technologies get used, you know, that's been formalized into this thing called the precautionary principle. Um, and the precautionary principle had a specific moment in time invention that's very relevant. It was invented by the German Greens in the 1970s to prevent uh, the use of nuclear power, um, which is a decision that is causing, you know, tremendous damage, not just globally, but specifically to Germany right now. Um, you know, Germany is basically, you know, deindustrializing in front of us um, uh, because of, uh, of this mentality to, to sort of catastrophic effect. Um, and, 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 you know, and a lot of why Russia was able to invade Ukraine is because they, you know, make so much money from, you know, selling uh, fossil fuels to Europe. Yeah, because 70 percent of 70 percent of GDP in Russia, I believe, is fossil. Fuels. Yeah, it's energy, it's fossil fuels. And like that market would go to zero if we had properly deployed news. Richard, Richard, you know, the, the, the you know, the, the demonized Richard Nixon uh, had a plan in 1971, the year I was born. Uh, he proposed a plan called Project Independence, which he said we should build a thousand civilian nuclear power plants in the 1970s. We should be completely fossil fuel independent, free, zero use, 100 uh, percent nuclear energy by by 1980. Um, and we could have done it. We had the technology. We knew how to do it. And we didn't do it. And it was a choice. And it was a catastrophically bad choice. And a lot of scientists every step of the way were against the use of nuclear power. Um, they were involved in, in, in all of this. And so th th this presumption that because you are the scientist or the technologist that you have the moral authority to make these sort of sweeping Or decisions. the filmmaker, or the filmmaker. The China syndrome was, was very influential. Or the filmmaker, or by the way, the journalist who cut, you know, the, all the news stories written about Three Mile Island, right, which we now know today, like, you know, basically, I, I think, I think that I believe the total number of deaths attributable to Three Mile Island, I think is still zero. Yeah, zero. Um, right, um, and so... Yeah, this like panic, um, you know, that basically was fed by many of and, our And, and by the way, the total number of deaths annually on oil rigs is extremely high. Like it's shockingly high. It's the most dangerous job one could imagine. Yeah, nuclear, civilian nuclear power globally in the last 70 years has been responsible for a number of deaths very close to zero in contrast to basically every other form of energy we know of. Um, so so we, we could talk a lot more about that. But like, <laughs> yeah, not, that, not to mention the geopolitical like issues and, and the wars. Exactly. So, so what we have today, I think we have like a shockingly kind of direct analogy, which is we have this new basically breakthrough science technology of AI. Um, it has potential national security implications. It also has potential civilian, you know, um, uh, lots of civilian use cases, lots of implications. Um, and then we have a scientific elite class, um, many of whom, you know, so look, some of whom are not involved in politics and they're just in the lab and they're doing their thing. And some of them, you know, um, whatever have different views, but like a fair number of the, you know, the ones that are in the press, the ones that are in Washington overwhelmingly um, are playing the same role that, you know, the hand ringers played, um, you know, following the creation of, of, of nuclear technology. And they are moving as aggressively as they can to cut off um, the use of AI um, in, uh, for sure, in, in civilian use cases by making all these lobbying efforts for regulation and all, all this, all this fear mongering that they're doing. Um, and, 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 the, and then the fact that this is happening against the backdrop of what looks like a new Cold War with, with a totalitarian communist regime, um, right? Like exactly like it happened, you know, in Oppenheimer's time with the Russians. Like, I, like it's, it feels eerily to me like history is repeating itself like a lot more directly than I would prefer. Um, and I think there are a lot of lessons to draw from the mistakes that were made in that era and that we should not make those mistakes in this era. And at least sitting here today, those lessons are, are not being drawn. No, <laughs> they are not. Well, this is an interesting question for you and to me, um, cause I think we'll have very different answers. Uh, what attracts fringe ideas people to the Bay area 
as in Oppenheimer's time. Uh, why was it a hotbed for communists? And I, I can actually, you know, I grew up in Berkeley, so I can probably speak directly to that. Well, you should talk about, if you could, just concepts for people who don't, aren't familiar with the Bay Area. Like, just describe, describe the nature of the Bay Area then and now in terms of, in terms of this question. So when I was growing up, um, look, the, the Bay Area is a, uh, one, it's an intellectual hotbed. Um, you know, just so many of the smartest people that I, you know, look, I went to Berkeley High School, which was a public school in Berkeley. And, um, you know, I, I went to Columbia, which is an Ivy League school, and, and there is no question the smartest kids at Berkeley High were smarter than the smartest kids at Columbia. Um, you know, it, it, it's just uh, like huge concentration of intellectual talent. Uh, you know, and, and of course, um, the Bay Area has kind of evolved into, you know, which to me isn't surprising at all into this, you know, the, 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 the mecca of high tech, um, also kind of, a, you know, intellectual ground zero. Um, but it's also... Uh, you know, incredibly left-wing. Um, and Berkeley is a basically a, a communist city. Yeah, I mean, it's a, I call it the People's Republic. Like, there are many communists in Berkeley. Like, and even, you know, to the extent they're not, like, there are communes, there's, like, communist ideas. Uh, you know, Berkeley instituted, I think, the first nuclear-free zone in, in America. You know, you had all these very, you know, the People's Park, which is, like, a communist park owned by the people. Um, when I was growing up as a kid, like there's just like many, many communist ideas there. Um, and, you know, what was the appeal? Uh, so I, I think like one, the highly intellectual kind of creative people are, are, are certainly open to new ideas. Um, and, you know, communism is, you know, because it's an idea, <laughs> uh, you know, mostly an idea, at least in the United States, thankfully, um, you know, it's got appeal. Uh, but I'd say there's, a, there's something kind of deeper growing up in Berkeley, you know, and I still have nostalgia for it, that at small scale, um, there's, a, there's an ethics to communism that is, you know, similar to a religious set of ethics. So Christianity or, you know, to some extent, you know, you know certainly Jewish culture, if not exactly Jewish religion, but Jewish religion, too. Um, where, uh, you know, there, there's just like a real obligation to care for each other um, and to uh, treat each other correctly. You know, the golden rule, all those kinds of things are very, you know, Jesus arguably was a communist. Uh, and, you know, these kinds of ideas um, are really great to live in when, when everybody abides by them. It makes for a great society. And I think that at a small scale, you know, in a lot of Berkeley, like you had some of that. Um, and, you know, like, like, I mean, it was one of the one of the things that was very shocking to me when I left Berkeley was, you know, just like how racialized the rest of the country was when like Berkeley was like, like that was like explicitly not a thing. Um, so it had, you know, there was a lot of those kinds of appeal. Um, but of course, you have like a massive scale issue with it uh, that that we uh, certainly overlooked as kids. I think there's also, I'd be curious what you think of this, I think there's also a reaction that takes place, which is a lot of people in the Bay Area then and now are, are imports, um, and you know some from overseas, but a lot from inside the U.S., right? And I'm an example of this. I grew up in the rural Midwest and, and moved here. And a lot of the kind of, you know, kind of classic Silicon Valley characters like Bob Noyce, right, were similar, similar to oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, from the Midwest, yeah. Right. I think there's also a reaction thing, which is I think if you... 
I think if you grow up in the American, like Midwest or South, a lot, if you're like, and you're like super like high IQ and super open to new ideas, you probably view the culture of the, where you grew up as sort of not being conducive to new ideas right. and to new yeah, thinking. Stay inside the lines. <laughs> Exactly. Or with that, you know, called tall, tall yeah. poppy syndrome. Um, yeah. Right. You know, a fair number of people, you know, kind of come here because they're going, they're, 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 they're reacting against that. Um, right. And so they have sort of a natural reaction against what they view as, you know, traditionalism, um, hide, you know, what they, what they would characterize as like hidebound morality, um, anti-intellectualism, um, you know, lack of creativity, lack of openness to new ideas. And then the other thing you get is you get people who come from the East Coast and they're reacting, I think, to something different. They're reacting to like almost history, right? They're, they're reacting to, you know, the East Coast, you know, in the U.S. is, you know, New York, Boston, so forth, at least, you know, historically is more, you know, focused on, you know, old, old, more old money, more, more kind of established social hierarchies, you know, more kind of clear gradations of like who matters and who doesn't, you know, where, where you went, right, where you went to school, who your family is. Um, you know, who you're married to and so forth, you know, kind of social status being the, the, the sort of thing that, that arguably is, is sort of central to the, the Eastern kind of establishment. Yeah, so it's a big thing that Bob Noyce kind of rooted out of Intel, like at its core. I mean, he, 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 he got rid of all of that East Coast idea. That was actually the birth of the Silicon Valley culture, amazingly. Right, egalitarianism, right. Everybody in the cubicle, right? Nobody gets the fancy office. Nobody gets the guaranteed parking spot. Well, and ironically, the term meritocracy came from uh, Bob Noyce and, and, and that idea of you weren't going to be judged on your family, your title. It was going to be, you're going to be judged on your ideas. And somehow that, that, that became uh, a negative. Yeah, and so it's kind of like this selection thing, I think, where you get this thing where it's like old is, you know, sort of it's like if, if, if what you believe, if let's say you're a young, maybe alienated person where you're growing up and you are smarter than the people around you and you're more open to new ideas and you have this sort of, in, sort of visceral reaction where things that are, let's say, the following old, traditional, right, backwards, reactionary, hidebound, um, hierarchical um, non-egalitarian, um, uh, you know, stuck in the mud, um, you know, Philistine, right? Like not open to new art, not open to new music and so forth, like all these things, then you select into the place that welcomes all of that, right? Um, which is the San Francisco Bay Area and California, right? Um, but 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 then what you right but then the, the the risk is of course what you get is you get you you by 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 fleeing the pathological thing that you hate right you kind of become the pathological thing on the other side yes yes the old line i always heard growing up was california everybody's so open minded their brains have fallen out <laughs> right like <laughs> which yeah you know <laughs> can happen can't happen. Can't happen. And so you you get this like hyper. You know. Then I, let's try to characterize it on the other side. You get in California the Bay. You get this kind of hyper. What do they call it? Xenophilia, right? So, you, so sort of love of the other, right? Rejection of one's own. Love of the other. This extreme level of openness. This extreme level of um, you know sort of embrace of creativity. New ways of living. By the way, new sexual mores. New food <laughs> habits. New right? drug ideas. Uh, new drug ideas, right? New religions, new cults. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so you, you, you get that whole other side of it. And I, and I, and anyway, my, my, my interpretation is therefore, therefore the communist, right. Therefore communism. Right. And then therefore, yeah, by the way, a lot of the other kind of, 
it's yeah yeah of course of, of course it's going to be here and of course all the people who are going to think that all those things are good ideas are going to be here and, and and it's and it's it's the good with the bad right it's the it's the it's the it's why you get silicon valley it's why you get hollywood it's why you get all the new ideas it's why you get all these new things right uh it's not an accident right um but um it, it's 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 a total package with the potential dark side i mean and and part of the um challenge is the level of talent is so high and the ability to convince the world of these um, sometimes not terrific ideas is, is potent. All right, but we have one from your buddy, Beth Jesus. <laughs> and uh, what he would like to know is, how do we stop the anti-capitalist communists from decelerating AI progress with red tape like they have done with the advancement of nuclear energy? How can we call them out for prioritizing control and top-down power over civilization growth? <laughs> That's a lot. Yes. Yeah, give it a whack. <sighs> well, it's a good insight. Look, I think that um, it, it's very, very important to join the conversation. And I think that, um, so, so look, the danger is, as with nuclear, right? Like if you are pro-nuclear, uh, you could be painted as, you know, amoral. Um, because everybody knew nukes were so dangerous and it was like this devil technology and all these things. Um, and so as a result, I think that, look, the, 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 the people of the time did not argue strong enough for it to, to, to win the thing, didn't argue, didn't lobby, didn't, um, you know, legislate, didn't, didn't stand up for it because, look, nobody wants to be painted as a bad person. And, uh, you know, history is a funny thing because, you know, at the time it's always, oh, like, you know, history is going to look back on you badly. The people who say that are usually the people who history looks back on badly on. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, like, I think we have to make the argument and, you know, and I think you've done a great job of that in your in your blog post, Mark, um, on why AI will save the world. Uh, but, you know, the 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 good the obvious good that's coming out of AI right now versus the theoretical, um, the, the theoretical kind of, not just unproven, but unsubstantiated threat, uh, which, you know, like if you read any of the arguments about, okay, this is what AI is gonna do, this is, this is my idea, like, okay, how do we test for that? How do we know? Um, there's nothing. So it, it's just like literally we're the good guys. Um, so we're going to either, uh, you know, we're going to curb AI, we're going to capture a monopoly for ourselves, or, you know, we know like the truth with a capital T, even though we have no way of proving it. And so we're going to stop progress, which you look is very dangerous right now because, you know, if you look at the threats that we face, be it, you know, pandemics or, climate change or um, just general kind of challenges with population growth, AI and technology is the way out. It is the way to, to, to solve these problems. Um, and, you know, it's, it's really kind of devastatingly scary that people would like undermine the one technology or the, the best hope for solving so many of these problems, disease, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's a, literally an attempt to withdraw the increase of intelligence from the world, right? Like it's literally an attempt to make the world dumber than it has to be, which- Pol Pot's idea, Pol Pot had that idea. 
<laughs> like people really need yeah. to think that one through. We talked about a lot of this. Oh, we talked kind of around a lot of this. I think at the core of it, there's a philosophical distinction and you, you just kind of alluded to it, but I'll, I'll make it explicit. Um, so there's a philosophical distinction in how people think about the world and Thomas Sowell uh, who's one of the you know great great minds of our time? Um, the way that he described you know and he grappled with a lot of these questions around communism and progress and growth and so forth. Over he started his out as a communist, yeah. He started out as a communist exactly, and he he thought his way out of it. But um, he, he what he said basically is look, there's when it comes to all these issues like this, there there are like two worldviews you can have, and he he calls them visions. There's two visions of the world you can have. Um, and the future the future world you can have, and he, he called them the 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 unconstrained vision and the constrained vision. Um, and the unconstrained vision is basically any vision of you can achieve utopia. Um, you can sit on Mount Olympus and you can decide how things are going to play out. You know, utilitarianism fits into the unconstrained vision. Communism fits into the unconstrained vision. Um, uh, sort of, you know, anything where it's like we can make, you know, we can, we can make decisions on behalf of everybody. You know, the, the, the good and the wise and the elite and the, the, the scientists and the academics and so forth. Like we can make decisions on behalf of everybody. We can centralize power within us because we are the ones that can be trusted to make the right decisions. Um, that's what he calls the unconstrained vision. And, you know, basically what he points out is to, to as you kind of, as, as Ben has described, the centralization of power that happens in the unconstrained uh, vision leads to, you know, sort of, sort of predictably catastrophic results. He says, look, the, the, the real world, the, the way things actually work, the way when, when things actually get better, the way, the way they get better is through what he called the constrained vision. And the, and the constrained vision is, is like, you know, decentralized as opposed to centralized, right? So uh, the constrained, the, the unconstrained vision is centralized control and 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 dictatorship of everything uh, by this by the smart and the wise. The 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 constrained vision is bottoms up decision making, right? Decentralization, uh, people working their way through it. Um, uh, you know, it's a market. The 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 constrained vision is the market economy versus a planned economy, right? The 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 constrained vision is AI is a tool for people to be able to experiment in many different ways to do things, as opposed to a you know set of sort of enlightened scientists or or, or academics who can make decisions on, on how this will get used. Um, and 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 what the constrained vision is is basically a recognition of the of the imperfectness of man, right? It's sort of a it's sort of a recognition that there's no one of us that's like wise enough um, to be able to play Zeus or God. <laughs> or Jesus or whatever, and, and basically dictate, right? It just, it doesn't exist. Like Jesus, you know, Superman doesn't exist. Jesus is just like, they're not, you know, they're not here. They may have been here at one point in the past. They're not here today. We're left with, we're, we're left with imperfect homo sapiens. Um, and so therefore what you want to do, if you want progress, you want basically maximum freedom, flexibility, right? Inventiveness, local application of, of, of technology, ability for people to experiment, right? Um, and, 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 and with that vision, you're much better off because you're harnessing the intelligence and energy of a much larger set of people to discover uh, the, 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 the best path forward. And, and, and to me, it's just like, again, on reading of history, it's just kind of crystal clear how this plays out. Um, but we are back in this moment where there are people who are claiming the power to be able to make these decisions on everybody's behalf. And, you know, look, the, the, the bad news is they're, they're winning in a lot of ways. Like they're very dominant in Washington. They're lobbying very aggressively right now. Um, you know, they're very dominant in the press. Um, you know, there's, there's serious danger here. The EU is about to pass, you know, a, a law based on these ideas that I think is going to be very devastating for them. Um, the good news is these people are a very small minority. These are not, you know, they're, they're hundreds or thousands, not tens or hundreds of thousands of these people or millions. Um, and so, you know, the rest of us don't have to put up with this. Um, and we don't have to let the decisions get made this way, um, you know, any more than we had to put up with the people who basically banned nuclear power in a way that we now know to be catastrophic. It's really interesting that the constrained version is the, the constrained vision is the vision of humility. 
um, and kind of understanding the limitations of humans and uh, the, the kind of the, 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 the self-appointed good people have zero humility about this and are willing to kind of dictate the future of the world from on high. And it is uh, it, it, it's just striking to me that, um, you know, people who are literally acting badly are acting badly under the belief that they are the good people. Um, and, and I think that's been true kind of throughout history. Uh, I'd say, the, you know, the other kind of uh, very encouraging thing about AI as opposed to nuclear uh, power and nuclear energy is, you know, with nuclear energy, the kind of, it was a physical thing um, that needed to be kind of uh, licensed and built and, and, and was kind of more directly controllable and deployed, um, you know, like to deploy a power grid which is kind of the main use of it, you, you do need the government's cooperation. I think with AI, um, you know, a lot of these ideas are gonna be pretty hard to enforce. And I think that's actually a good thing. I think that, you know, you can't, like you can try to outlaw math, you can try to outlaw textbooks, you can try to outlaw open source, um, but it, you know, it's very difficult to enforce. And like, you know, forcing it underground would be bad, but uh, it would be you know, like, there is no, underground nuclear power like that, that, that is not an option. Um, so, you know, I think that as a force, the unenforceability of it um, kind of may lead to a situation where as it manifests itself, people will come to understand um, the value of it and it being a force for good and it not being, uh, you know, something that needs banning or massive constraining or concentration in the hands of two or three companies or that kind of thing, which is all being pushed very hard today. Um, all right, well, we're coming up like right on two hours. So uh, I hope you all enjoyed this, um, our first of many podcasts. And uh, yeah, we certainly had a good time doing it. And I'd like to, uh, on behalf of Mark and, and uh, Andreessen Horowitz, we just say thank you for listening. Great, thank you everybody. Thank you. Thank you.